0: I invite you to, again, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John 17, we're looking tonight at verses 20 through 23. Kept getting confused this past week because the morning sermon was Ephesians 1 essentially 20 through 23, also, really 19 through 23. John 17, beginning in verse 23. Hear the word of God, or verse 20, sorry, 223. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Your thanks to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for your light, that we would see the light of the Word of God. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, and to, to receive and take in all you have for us tonight, we thank you for this passage. Pray for your blessing on it now and our study of it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with these verses, we have arrived at the final section in John chapter 17, and you may notice if you're looking at the ESV and probably other modern translations, that it is broken up this way, 1 through 5, 6 through 19, and then 20 through the end of the chapter. 1 through 5, of course, Jesus was uh, focused on his, his return to his Father, his return to glory, the glory from which he came. And then that second, in the middle, in the largest part, verses 6 through 19, Jesus was praying specifically for his current disciples, the 12, now 11, Judas's departure, uh, but also other believers that, that knew Jesus in the flesh. Which was an interesting dynamic, uh, yet Jesus said it was better that he goes away and sends the Holy Spirit, which we enjoy. Uh, And so he prays specifically for the disciples then, but they are just the beginning. And as Jesus continues in this prayer, into this section we've come to tonight, he's looking ahead. He's looking to the future and prays for those who will believe those who will believe. Let's take a look. First of all, in verse 20, we see the object of Jesus' prayer. He does pray for the future church, the church to come. And as we've said and and looked at, the things that Jesus has been praying in that middle section for his current disciples specifically pretty much applies by extension to us, to all believers The kinds of things Jesus prayed for, their spiritual protection while they're in the world, for their holiness while they're in the world, that was a concern for those disciples, but it was a concern that Jesus would have for us today as well. We too need to be protected from the evil, and we too need to be sanctified by the truth of the Word of God. Well, here in verse 20, Jesus makes it explicit. We said it was by extension, by implication, but Jesus makes it explicit now that those petitions apply to us also. Notice what he says. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word And when he says, for these only, I think he's implying that what he has been praying applies to the future church, even as he goes on to pray specifically things for the future church. And he describes this future church as those who will believe in me through their word. That is the word of his disciples, his apostles. In other words, what Jesus did for the apostles, the apostles do for us. Back in, in verses 6 through 8, John seventeen six through 8, Jesus had said, "...I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word." Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So Jesus spoke the word, the message to them. He revealed to them the Father. He came and taught these disciples uh, that we know from Scripture, the, the word of God, the message of the kingdom. Uh, he taught them about who he was as the Messiah who would come into the world and bring redemption. He explained the meaning of the Old Testament that was now being fulfilled in Jesus, that he was the son of David, the king, but he was also the suffering servant who would fight a victory not with a sword but on the cross and win. And the disciples received this. They believed it, and they they understood it, at least to some extent, not perfectly. And the giving of the Spirit would help immensely. But they got it, and they believed in Jesus as their Lord, their Messiah, and as their King. And so now Jesus refers to those who will believe through their word as they go out and preach the good news. Uh, And it's not that the word originates with them, but it's the same message of the kingdom, message of good news, message of God's grace that Jesus gave to them. They, in turn, went out and proclaimed in the power of the Spirit That was given to them. Now, if you uh, have your Bible open, turn to Romans chapter 10. I'm I'm having you turn there because this is a bit of a lengthy quotation, but I think an important one for what Jesus is talking about here. Romans 10, uh, verse 6, down to verse 17. Of course, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome, and this is what he says and listen to this with what we just read from Jesus in mind. Keep that in mind as we hear what Paul is saying. Of course, Paul was after Jesus. Uh, He was around while Jesus was alive. How much interaction or awareness he had of Jesus, even in person, we don't know. We know, of course, he opposed Jesus and opposed followers of Jesus until the Lord met him and converted him. This is what Paul writes. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. But there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he quotes. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? again. It keeps popping up. Now, literally, it is, it is the word for word, logos, word, but as in English, Greek words, too, have a semantic range, and it can mean message, the message of Christ, the message of the gospel. And But the point is, is what Paul is saying is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He prays for those who will believe through their preaching of the word, who never met Jesus in the flesh but believe in him nonetheless. Now preached by his apostles and by their converts after they're gone to others and so on to the present day. Right down to us sitting in this room tonight hearing the word of God preached. By the way, that is true apostolic succession. Not a succession of bishops and whatnot, not a succession of men, but a succession of truth. Apostolic truth, the truth that the apostles received from the Lord and have passed down and generations after generations have continued to proclaim that truth and pass it down. That is the true apostolic succession. Now, you and I are way on down the line from this room where Jesus was speaking with his disciples and from the day of Pentecost. And who knows how much farther that line is going to go on before Jesus returns. And it will go on until Jesus returns. The church will always exist, not necessarily in the same strength in all times and all places, but the church will always be on the earth until Jesus returns. This succession will continue until that day that the trumpet sounds and Jesus returns. But Praise God that the gospel has come to us. by whomever we heard the gospel, maybe it was our parents, or maybe it was a friend, or maybe it was a preacher, or maybe it was someone on the radio or television or Internet, or whatever it was, this succession has come down to us. And Jesus was foreseeing that that would happen. He knew that was the plan. And that's why I spent so much time in the middle of this prayer praying for the apostles because it started with them. They are the ones, after Jesus, who set it in motion. Is that any, uh, any wonder then that he spent so much time praying that the Lord would protect them from the evil one, they would be holy, that they would be sanctified in the truth and not let off into falsehood, how primary they were in that first century as they got the succession Started, so first of all, we see the object of Jesus' prayer. He he knows that there will be this future church beyond his time, beyond the disciples' time, uh, into the future, and he prays for that. And it includes us. Jesus was praying for us as part of that. So first, the object of Jesus' prayer, the future church. Second, we see the request of Jesus' prayer. What did he ask for? The request of Jesus' prayer was for the unity of the church. See that in verses 21 on down into verse 23. Jesus prays that they may be one. That they may be one. He prays that we would all be one. This was not something he directly prayed in the middle section for his current disciples, but just as what he prayed for them would extend to us, what he prays here for us in his future church certainly extends to his disciples of that time as well, would apply to them. He would certainly want Peter and James and John and and Simon and all the rest to be one. And uh, how often did he work with them as they'd sit there pick at each other and fight with each other over which one was the greatest. Jesus would huddle them up and talk to them. No, no, whoever's least among you is the greatest. He wanted them to be one. But it's interesting, you know, from Jesus' point of view, contemplating those who would believe through the testimony, the proclamation of these apostles— as he thinks about that future church, as he prays for them and all the things that Jesus could possibly have prayed for them, prayed for us, he prays that we would be one. He prays for our unity. It's interesting, that's what he singles out. Well, let's talk about the nature of this unity and then let's talk about the reason for this unity and and why it should be there, why Jesus would ask of that. First of all, the nature of this unity it would be very easy to look around at the church and the world and say, wow, you know, the Father really said no to that one. By the way, Jesus did not always get a yes answer to his prayers, did he? Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, if there is any other way, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. That didn't happen. He drank the cup to the full the next day on on the cross. Well, you might say, well, maybe, maybe the Father said no on this one, too. And, you know, organizationally, we could say that that is true. The church is, is broken up into the various denominations and non-denominations and, and church and theological traditions. I mean, you could take just our own city and, and be astounded at the diversity of organizations, theological traditions that are represented in our city because of different ways of understanding the Bible on important topics like baptism, like the Lord's Supper, like election, like the nature of the church and organization and structure of the church and, and other things. Um, but if you stop and think about it, if we were not divided organizationally for those reasons— we almost certainly would have to be divided organizationally for other reasons. Language, for example. I spent a summer in South Korea when I was in college, a short-term missionary with a group from Mission to the World, and I heard any number of what I'm sure are very fine sermons, but they were in Korean. Every now and then I'd catch the word for God. Every now and then I would catch the word for Jesus. That's good. That was reassuring. Jesus is getting mentioned in this sermon. But that's about all I took away from the sermons. And it was fascinating to listen to a preacher preach in Korean. Uh, but after a while, you know, I started longing for a good sermon in English. And then Pastor Frank Barker visited. Not only spoke English, but Southern English. It was, it was my language. It was a great blessing. But if, if only for the reason of language alone, the church would have to be broken up into various languages so we could be edified, so we could hear the gospel. By the way, the last weekend we were there in South Korea in Seoul, we went to uh, the Yeodofu Gospel Church. At the time, it was the largest church in the world. It may still be. It had about half a million members and had simultaneous English translation. I guess someone repeating what the pastor said, and we could hear it in in headphones. Um, So language is one reason. Geography is another, that the church would almost inevitably be broken up organizationally. Uh, To have one organizationally one worldwide church would be an extreme challenge, both because of the distances involved and just the sheer unwieldiness of it. Um, and and it would almost inevitably soon break up. There is something about spanning regions. In fact, I've heard conversations about the PCA, which from the beginning aspired to be a national denomination, not a regional denomination, but to be a national denomination, as as some of the founders described it, envisioning a conservative mainline church that that spanned the, the, the United States, that spanned the continent. And yet some have talked about how Presbyterian church, the Presbyterian church has its origins in Scotland. I just learned this at a conference this weekend. I, I probably knew it, but it, it was mentioned. That the population of Scotland is around 5 million. That's smaller than our city, metro Atlanta. And here we are with a denomination that spans not only the the much increased geographical size of the United States, but, what, 330 million people. And how does a Presbyterian church function over that kind of size and and numbers and and diversity? Um, So if you tried to have one organizationally, one unified church around the world, it would almost certainly have to break up. Geography is one reason. Language is another. But even if we're not one organizationally, we can be one spiritually. And I think when you get down to it, this is probably more what Jesus had in mind, that we would be one spiritually. And we can do that, even across denominational lines with those who are genuine believers in Christ. And just to give you an example, I mentioned it before, uh, Ty Blackburn, pastor of Providence Church, and I are good friends. We met in seminary. And uh, he's he's Baptist in his view of baptism. I'm Presbyterian in my view of baptism. And yet for years, we have met roughly monthly to get together, and sometimes we go eat. More often, we just meet in our offices and uh, talk about how things are going in the church. And... uh, Pray with each other, pray for each other. We almost never talk about, we virtually never talk about baptism. I mean, it may come up usually in a humorous context, but uh, we just have much more interesting and, and uh, edifying for us things to talk about. Um, it's not that we're trying to avoid the subject, but he prays for our church and I pray for their church and we are, we are very good friends. And I really think that's more the point Jesus is getting at, not that we're one in terms of organization, but that we are one in recognizing each other and loving each other and having affection for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, even where a different understanding of Scripture and therefore maybe a different tradition or different denominational affiliation may be there. Uh, and in fact, sometimes the, the organizational disunity helps to protect the spiritual unity. Because if Ty and I were in the same church and say, a baby is born, I'm saying, hey, Ty, when are we going to baptize the baby? And Ty's going, wait, that's, you know, what? where's that, in the Bible, right? So uh, it does kind of help that we're able to sort of practice our understanding of the Bible and our separate organizations and yet recognize each other as brothers in Christ and pray together. Uh, so in this spiritual unity, I really think that's more the point of what Jesus was getting at. And of course, I'm talking about fellow biblical believers. I'm not talking about you know, liberal churches, people who've abandoned the faith, who biblical, abandoned biblical teaching, uh, certainly not those who claim to be Christians, and yet whose teaching is, is radically at variance with biblical teaching like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not talking about that. Uh, or even liberal modernist denominations that have abandoned the faith, pretty much apostate. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about genuine lovers, believers in Christ who worship Him, who love Him, who will be in heaven and will all be together in heaven, uh, where we will all learn that the Presbyterians were right. <laughs> you can delete that from the live stream. <laughs> No, I think, I think it'll be kind of like, like Tommy. We'll have so much better things to do in heaven. We just won't even probably even think about it. We'll, we'll know the truth. It'll all be clear then. It'll be so, so delighted to be in heaven. I, I don't think we'll even spend much time. Talking about that because we are so delighted to be with the Lord in heaven. But that's what I'm talking about, that spiritual unity. So that's the nature of this unity, it's spiritual. It's our oneness in Christ, regardless of whatever denominational flavor we happen to be. But also the reason for it. And we see this in verse 22. Uh, What is the reason that Jesus prays for this unity? Well, in verse 22, he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Even as we are one. The reason Jesus is praying for the oneness, the unity of his church, is because of the oneness, the unity of the Godhead, of God himself. And Jesus states this uh, very well back in verse 11 where he anticipates what he's praying for right now. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So the the reason for it is the unity of the Godhead. And Jesus prays this because he wants the church to reflect that same unity, the same unity in diversity that we see in God. And yes, there's diversity in God. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. There are three distinct persons. By the way, don't fall into the ancient heresy of modalism where they've, you know, posited that the father became the son, comes back as the spirit. That's not it at all. They they exist at the same time. The father is the father, the son is the son, spirit is the spirit. They're each distinct. And yet there is a profound unity, right? Three persons in one God. And so Jesus wants his church to reflect that unity in diversity. Uh, Unity is not uniformity. There's great diversity in the church. There's diversity, great diversity in our own small congregation. There's ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, political diversity, differences of interests, things we like and are interested in, uh, regional accents, sports allegiances, Just in our own congregation, just in you who are here gathered tonight, there is immense diversity. And so how much more, say, the whole PCA, or the whole church in the United States, and the whole church around the world? How much more diversity? And yet, united in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So Jesus wants, because of the Trinity and its unity, Jesus wants us to reflect that unity in diversity in the church. So another reason that he, he prays based on the unity of the Trinity is our union with the Trinity. Not only that we reflect the Trinity, but because and precisely because we are connected to the Trinity, our union with the Trinity. Notice verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, we speak often and frequently of union with Christ. Romans 6, I tend to go back to that a lot, and for good reason. That's vital to understanding the Christian life. But by our union with Christ, we also enter into union with God and enter into fellowship in that inter-Trinitarian fellowship that God has. Now, we don't become gods. We don't, and there's a mystery to that fellowship we, we may never comprehend. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, isn't he? That they also may be in us, just as the Father is in Jesus. Jesus and the Father is an interconnectedness among the Trinity. And Jesus is saying that as believers, we share in that. We have entered into that fellowship. And again, in verse 22, He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's an astounding statement. Jesus is saying that the world may know that you loved them, the believers, just as you loved me, your only begotten Son. As the church, Jesus wants us not merely to reflect the Trinity in its unity and diversity, but to show the reality of our fellowship with the Trinity. And so when you have two Christians, two Christians even of different denominations or different theological traditions, both of whom belong to Christ and therefore are in this fellowship with the Trinity and Jesus dwelling in them, should they not be one with each other? I guess the best analogy I could think of would be, you know, siblings, brothers and sisters growing up in the same family. Shouldn't there be an affection for each other as being children of the same parents and sharing the DNA of their parents, being related to each other, and, and, and going through life experiences together? Should there not be an affection, a oneness there. Now I realize families don't always work that way. Sometimes there is a great closeness there, and sometimes there's not for one reason or another. But it does, it is sort of the illustration. They they two, three, four, five, however many children there are, have the same parents. They are connected in that way. And I think that sort of illustrates what Jesus is saying here. We are all believers, regardless of what denomination, what tradition we're a part of, we have the same father. We belong to the same God. And in a family, it doesn't always work that way, but grace is thicker than blood. Remember Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters, pointing to those who believed in him. So yes, as Christians, we should recognize a common father in belonging to a common family. And so just as a parent would be grieved to see uh, his children, her children at odds with each other. Don't you think it grieves the father to see Christians, his children at odds with each other or even despising each other? And we've shared this common experience of conviction of sin, saving grace in Jesus. By the way, uh, you know Paul's warning in Ephesians, do not grieve the spirit. And that gets used in, in a variety of contexts. But do you know the context where Paul actually said it? How we might grieve the Holy Spirit? It's not by sexual sin. It's by relational sin. If you turn there or look there in Ephesians chapter four, uh, verse 30, is grieve the Holy Spirit. But where Paul, Paul says this, He's, this is the context. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here, that's, of course, we saw that in Ephesians 1. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So in context, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, by being bitter, full of wrath toward another believer, anger, clamor, slander, malice, being unkind, being hard-hearted, refusing to forgive but bearing a grudge. That's how we grieve the Holy Spirit. Failing to recognize and honor and have affection for one another as fellow children of our Father in heaven. And so Jesus is praying this because of the Trinity, and we've already seen, do we reflect the Trinity, because of our union with the Trinity, but also because of the glory of the Trinity. Look again at verse 22. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are One. The glory, uh, New Testament scholar uh, D.A. Carson explains, he says, glory commonly refers to the manifestation of God's character or person in a revelatory context. In other words, where he's being revealed. Jesus has mediated the glory of God personally to his first followers and through them to those who believe on account of their message. And so the glory of God is seen in the church. And it's seen when there is this oneness. The church exists to glorify God, bring glory, show the glory of God. And we do this, of course, as we proclaim the gospel, share the gospel with people, speak of Jesus to others. And as we live, as those who believe the gospel, to live like our membership vow says when we live as as becomes the follower of Christ that is as is fitting for a follower of Christ which would certainly include love for one another fellowship with one another the communion of the saints whether they are of our tribe or not a fellow brother sister or uh, brother or sister in Christ and that shows the glory of God and dear friends our world desperately needs that because we are, as you know, divided into warring tribes as a society. And if Christians can't, despite differences of whatever sort, bridge that gap by common grace in Christ Jesus, there's no hope. Christians are the answer. God's grace is the answer. And God is glorified when His people, whatever differences they have, yet have a profound unity and love and affection for one another as the family of God. So I've seen the object of Jesus' prayer, future church. We've seen the request of Jesus' prayer, the unity of the church. And then last, we see the motive of Jesus' prayer, the witness of the church. Why does Jesus pray this? Well, he prays it because he's concerned for the witness-bearing of the church. You see this in the end of verse 21 and also 23. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then 23, so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you loved me. So, twice Jesus states the motive for making this prayer for unity, for the sake of the church's witness in the world, for the credibility of the message of the church, that the world may know that the Father sent Jesus into the world, that the world would know the Father loves his children just as he loves Jesus. Now, it is true that organizationally, and the world sees the different organizations and, and is, is perhaps put off by that. I think, as I said, some organizational uh, disunity is, is inevitable for various reasons. But, but deeper than that, when Christians are divided, when they despise each other, when we act hatefully toward other Christians, uh, either of different Groups, labels, or even even Christians in the same congregation in which we find ourselves, what does that say to the world? When we can't even get along with each other, what does it say to the world? What it says is this, nothing to see here, folks. Just a bunch of hypocritical people seeking their own interests at the expense of one another. Just like the world. Nothing to see here here. But when the world sees professing Christians, perhaps with a great deal of diversity among them, and yet unified, who live the life they profess, who love one another, who are secure enough in their love of the Heavenly Father to love one another, When they know that the Father loves other believers and not just me and my little tribe, then the world takes notice. Then there's something interesting to see. Then there's something different from the rest of the world. Then our words have some meaning because they're backed up by our lives. And the world might notice such a group as that. It may be even attracted to such a group as that. People who love each other, people who serve each other, people who help each other, and people who, even after loving each other, seem to have enough love left over to love unbelievers. People in their sin. Sin that may be distasteful, off putting, offensive. But, dear friends, they're not a problem for the gospel. They're the reason for the gospel, just like you, just like me. And they need it too. That says something to the world. When believers love each other, when believers serve, like in disasters, when it's the Christians who show up first to help, to serve, to love. That says there's a God in heaven who has loved us and who sent his son for us, a mighty savior of sinners. So Jesus prayed that this future church would be one. And shouldn't we take Jesus' prayer to heart? Jesus prayed this because this is what he wanted. So let's take it to heart, and not so much by lamenting divisions in the church, although that's certainly lamentable, but by demonstrating unity among ourselves, the unity that Jesus prayed for, even just among ourselves. It starts with you. It starts with me. And it starts with us as a congregation. It starts with us as a denomination. And it looks a lot like what Paul described in Colossians 3, and I'm going to close with this. But what Jesus prayed for when it's happening looks like what Paul wrote in Colossians three twelve through 17. So just, just listen. Paul said, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If we do that, if we put that into practice, I think we'll go a long way in being an answer to Jesus' prayer. Let us pray. Father, help us to do that. Forgive us, Lord, where we have been uh, tribal, where we have been uh, condescending or said unkind things about other believers, maybe even in this this church, in our own congregation. Father, pray that uh, we would increasingly look like an answer to Jesus' prayer, that we would demonstrate all that Paul wrote there in Colossians 3. Father, all to your glory, All to your joy as your children love one another. Lord, all to the witness of the church in the world. Father, that they would see that there is a God in Israel and the difference he makes through his grace in Christ in our lives. Father, to our joy as we live together as your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.